Welcome everybody to Productivity Book Group. I'm your host and facilitator, Ray Sidney Smith. Productivity Book Group has an author interview series that we do, which brings readers and listeners in touch with new and interesting authors. They may not be necessarily new to uh, you, but they are just new to me necessarily uh, for us to have them in and on Productivity Book Group. And so with that, today we're sitting down with Grace Marshall. Grace Marshall is known for her refreshingly human approach to productivity. She is head coach and chief encourager, love that title, at gracemarshall.com. She's also a productivity ninja with global training company Think Productive, and she is the uh, the author of award-winning How to Be Really Productive, Achieving Clarity and Getting Results in a World Where Work Never Ends, published in 2015. Her new book, Struggle, the surprising truth, beauty, and opportunity hidden in life's shittier moments is available now. Uh, some of you may know, and I'm just going to take a quick uh, divergence here to say that some of you may know, I host several other podcasts, one of which is Anything But Idle. It's a weekly commentary show curating the best productivity and technology news. And in March for Women's History Month, we, cre uh, we created a poll for our audience to vote on the top 10 female productivity technology and organization experts. And lo and behold, out of the hundreds of votes, uh, Grace Marshall won first place. <laughs> so all of our experts are winners, but it's nice to be recognized as number one, of course. And so welcome to Productivity Book Group, Grace. Thank you so much, Ray. Really pleased to be here. Yeah, this is so fantastic to finally meet you, uh, having connected via Twitter and folks telling me about this Grace Marshall, who I should know. And uh, and then you had this book coming out, and I thought this is really just an amazing opportunity to talk to you and get to know you. And really, in this author interview series that we do on Productivity Book Group, it's really just about getting to know the author. But of course, you have this book out, Struggle. And so I do want to for us to like talk through it a bit. And I wanted just to start with just if you can give us a, a general background, kind of who you are and how did you get to the world of productivity? What led you down this pathway to this strange and wonderful world of personal productivity? Sure, so um, I graduated from university with a modern languages and management, international management and modern languages degree. Um, so I, were, I guess I was prepped and primed for the corporate ladder. Uh, a lot of my fellow cohort went into big, you know, corporate names, big names, um, oil and gas companies, accountancies, consultancies, that kind of thing. And I fell into a tiny little startup working in renewable energy. Um, and um, in, I was the marketing assistant uh, in a team of two, uh, where there was a marketing director who made all the decisions, and then there was me who made everything happen. Um, and what this gave me was actually a very quick um, learning curve, a very steep and very quick learning curve that led me to realize that that particular type of marketing was not for me. And um, I had my midlife crisis in my mid-20s and, and decided on a complete career change. Um, took some time out to start a family, went through an identity crisis, and then um, retrained as a coach and started up my own coaching business. So ironically, I now do marketing every single day of my life. <laughs> but um, that led me into working with people who were juggling business and family. Um, and too much to do, not enough time. How do we fit it all in was the number one challenge for everybody I was working with. And I had two kids as well. And my business is like my middle child. So it was very much a pressing need for me. I'm naturally disorganized. So I wouldn't have picked productivity or time management as my thing, but it picked me because it was the number one challenge facing all of my clients. So um, I just started to, eventually I started to go, okay, just answer the question, Grace, like, how do we do this? How do we do it? Um, and the more I dived into it, the more I realized, ah, oh, do you know what? It's not just about getting super organized 
Um, it's not just about time management. So much of it is about what goes on in our heads. Um, and that kind of psychological side of it is what led me to get really interested in productivity. So that led me to write my first book, um, 21 Ways to Manage your stuff, the Stuff That Sucks Up Your Time um, in 2012. And then that also led me to working with Graham at Think Productive. And I became their first female productivity ninja. <laughs> in um, um in the same year um and then the, the other books and clearly um one of my strengths is not choosing short book titles <laughs> so those of you who are listening to the podcast may not notice this about grace but you are asian of asian descent and uh those of you who uh maybe don't know me uh very well or even if you know me very well, you probably don't know this about me as well, but I also happen to be of half Asian descent. And I'm always curious about how uh, being of you know Asian descent really factors into the productivity game, because at least the way in which I was raised, uh, my mother's uh, British actually by upbringing. And so it's really interesting to be an American with a, an a Asian mother who also happens to have been raised British. So it's just uh, for you, um, having grown up, uh, you know, British or, you know, English, I'm not sure which, uh, but, you know, growing up that way and um, kind of experiencing your own Asian heritage, how did that really factor into your own uh, perception or view of productivity? Such an interesting question. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 British born. Uh, both my parents are Hong Kong Chinese. Um, they both came over to Britain to to study and then ended up staying there. And and so I think in our family, education is king. Um, in fact, um, so I met my husband um, when I was on a gap, not a gap year, um, a placement year. So it was part of my degree, um, but it was a year in industry. And, and we met there and, and we were engaged um, just before I finished my final year. And the only thing my grandmother wanted to know was, you are going to finish your degree, right? <laughs> She's like, hey, I'm engaged. She's like, I don't care. Are you going to finish your degree? <laughs> um, so I think education was a big thing there. Um, my family tends to have quite a traditional view of jobs. So there are, you know, it, it's kind of doctors, teachers. Um, my dad was a, a consultant environmental engineer. So um, I think they weren't quite sure what was going on when I quit my job and I then went into coaching and started up my own business. I think it's not until I published my first book that my dad went, oh, okay, she's an author. I, I know that one. <laughs> How about you? How yeah, you they're, they're definitely binaries, aren't there? I, I think you and I shared the same grandmother because all my grandmother could talk about was, you know, your education, what are you doing about your education, and making sure that she had five daughters and, uh, you know, inclusive of my mom. And uh, and so, you know, all she wanted to do was make sure that when she came to the United States that all of her daughters got educated and, you know, two PhDs, multiple master's degrees among them. You know, she just wanted to make sure they were all set for life. And uh, that meant education. And so I, I'm, I really appreciate you sharing that insight into uh, into your background and history because I think it's it's interesting just to, for everybody to understand that we all grow up with different perspectives on productivity and the perspectives that we have on productivity are indelible in many ways and they make their way into not just our work but our work with others and the way in which we perceive the world and so that takes me kind of my first question here I like to ask authors about this who are in the productivity genre about how you define personal productivity because you do this in your work and on your website and elsewhere how do you define find personal productivity. So we're all kind of on the same playing field in terms of how you see it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I like to say, often people think about productivity as efficiency. 
Um, and sometimes people go beyond that and think of it as effectiveness. So efficiency is doing, you know, doing things faster, doing things better, but effectiveness is doing the right things. Um, but I would go a bit further and say, actually, I think it's about the whole work-life experience, because I think it's about doing good work in a way that does you good, as well as the good that you do out there in the world. So for me, productivity is, is as much about how do I feel when I'm working um, and how is this experience for me? So things like work, um, I don't like using the word work-life balance, but yeah, that work-life experience, the um, our life at work, our life outside of work, and um, you know, yeah, that, the whole thing around burnout, for example, that, that fascinates me when it comes to productivity. Because if you see productivity is just about getting as much stuff out there, that's the quickest route to burnout. Right, because there's nothing recharging you, right? And I and I frequently talk about this notion of rejuvenation, right? And rejuvenation is such a strange thing to people, but I always say that it's actually the expending of energy uh, that helps to recharge you, right? Because if we're just talking about rest, rest is just you sleeping, right? Rest is you not being inert, right? Uh, and your your internal world is doing a lot of stuff. Your brain's working when you're sleeping and, and resting and so on and so forth. But rejuvenation is this activity of really doing things that help recharge you. And so I love that about uh, your perspective on that matter. Let's, let's dig into struggle, the surprising truth, beauty, and opportunity hidden in life's shittier moments. And let's talk about what led you to write a book about struggle of all things uh struggle and i think that it's a fascinating topic just generally and perhaps how you see them different from say other uh, terms whether in psychology or outside of psychology you know angela duckworth another uh you know uh great asian researcher out there in the world and she is uh you know all about grit and we hear resilience and perseverance so can you can you tell us a little bit about the history of what led you to write the book struggle and why this topic yeah so for me this was a topic that just refused to go away and um, it felt like it was kind of on the periphery of productivity um, and it always felt like a taboo because you know, in, in the world of productivity, the kind of conversations that I have with people, when they start saying, I feel like I'm struggling, that's almost people's way of saying, I don't feel productive. So it's almost seen as the opposite of being productive. But I don't think that tells a full story of struggle or of productivity. Because actually, when you come to think about it, sometimes when things go wrong, um, you know, when, when something's not working, when there's a crisis, when there's a global pandemic, um, you know, yes, that can um, have a negative if, uh, impact on productivity, but it can also open up doors to innovation, to creativity, to um, better ways of doing things, because the way our brains work is we're wired to, um, we're biased to the familiar. So, um, you know, that's why we like routines, because it's like, oh, I know how to do this really, really well. And so I can refine that routine, I can get efficient at doing that. Um, and so we tend to be biased to the familiar, and often it's not until we uh, the conventional route is shut and not until we can't do something that we tend to go to the periphery and start to go well what how else can I do things or how else can I look at it so struggle can often be the spark for innovation um, but I think also it's struggle sometimes we read it wrong so sometimes when we're struggling with something say for example writing a book um, you know I, I, you know, I am convinced there is no such thing as an easy book to write <laughs> so writing a book is something we will always struggle at doing, but it's a very worthwhile thing to do. Equally, um, you know, when we're working on something that's new, when we're stretching ourselves, when we're developing, when we're learning, or when we're going into new territory, whether that's a new business or a new area or you know, anything uncertain, new territory is going to involve some kind of struggle. And when we think, when, when we tend to think of struggle as, oh, it's a sign that something's gone wrong, 
what we will instinctively want to do is to either get rid of it or get away from it. And neither of those allow us to be really present and fully immersed in the work itself. So what that looks like sometimes is people go, I'm really struggling with this. And I've got a ton of other stuff I need to do. I've got all these emails I need to answer. I've got these quick wins I can tick off. I will feel more productive if I do that instead. And so therefore I'll procrastinate on writing the book or whatever it is that's the, the kind of harder struggle. You see struggle as a symptom or a cause in the pursuit of productive ends. Like, do you, do you see it as its own productive component like its own thing that we should do as a part of being productive people? Or do you see it as kind of a symptom or a cause in that sense? I'm, I'm curious where you're, where you're kind of placing these things in, in the yeah. book. I think for me, I see it as part of the territory. Um, and, you know, and, and I think we can make it worse by struggling with struggling. So we can, you know, if, if we feel like struggle means, I think it's to do the meaning that we attach to it. If we feel like struggle means that, there's something wrong or there's something wrong with us um, then we make that much harder to get through that territory it's almost like we're, we're kind of just going eyes shut hold on as fast as possible just try and ride my way through or run away from this this particular stretch of road as it were um, but actually I think there is a lot of um, I call it treasure in the book there's a lot of treasure that we can find on that road if we can go through it with eyes wide open um, so I don't know if that's it's a cause or or a symptom, but I think it's part of the territory. For years and years, I have had this quotation in a myriad of places in my world. It's by Harriet Beecher Stowe, which is an American writer and abolitionist, and uh, she wrote, "Quote: When you get in a tight place and everything goes against you, till it seems as though you could not hold on a minute longer, never give up. Then, for that is just the place and time the tide will turn." End quote. And it's so funny, when I was reading your book, I was just immersed in the concept of, of struggle. Uh, for those, again, you don't know me as well, and, and folks listening may not know this, but I have a background in, in Buddhism. And so uh, having having been, a, uh, you know, a, a Buddhist in training, so to speak, I don't consider myself necessarily a Buddhist today either. But, you know, having studied Buddhism and being really immersed in that idea that uh, life is suffering, and that uh, the more we can bring ourselves to the moment and to the present uh, allows us to be able to uh, really be expansive in our um, being. And that, of course, can eliminate this concept of suffering. There's a little bit of that in the concept of struggle throughout the entire book there. This is this thread that we can actually be productive. And as you said, like the tapestry of life is about struggle. Humanity's existence is about struggle, right? And, uh, and so there's a lot of this kind of stuff wrapped up in it. And I'm curious, you structured the book in three parts, uh, smarter, braver and stronger. And can you talk to us a little bit about what those three terms meant to you as you were creating the narrative arc for the book? Mm. So the, the three terms actually came from a Winnie the Pooh quote. Um, so it's, um, you know, remember you are smarter than you think. Um, I, I for always forget it. I, I always need to look it up, but you're braver and stronger basically than, than you realize. Um, and for me, it was recognizing that the smarter is about how we see struggle. So if we learn to see it in a different way, if we learn to think about it in a different way, we can change our relationship with it. Um, braver is about trusting the process. So just because you know that something good is going to come out of it doesn't make it, you know, 
it makes it, you know, it doesn't make it easier. It's still, it's still tough to get through. And sometimes it will still take time to get through as well. And I think often in productivity, we get caught up in, in speed and in chasing speed and just wanting to get through things quickly. And yet sometimes what happens then is that we don't give ourselves, maybe we don't give ourselves time to make mistakes. We're going to give ourselves time to risk getting it wrong because that's, that feels like a waste of time. But equally, we don't give ourselves time to rejuvenate and to rest and to let things catch up with us. And so that kind of almost recognizing that you trusting the process means that sometimes things will be slow and it will be hard and will feel like treacle. And again, it doesn't mean that you've gone wrong or you're doing it wrong. And so that's about kind of trust and courage, I guess. And then the third part stronger is about growth. So it's about the resilience that we develop and, and how we strengthen through struggle and also how we grow and transform. And one of the things I, I noticed when, when I started looking into that kind of metaphor is, is how we often have this view of transformation that is all about the beauty and the glamour. It's like, look at the beautiful butterfly that comes out of the cocoon. And we forget that actually when you look into, so there's a quote I include in the book, that actually when you cut open a chrysalis, what you find looks a lot like death and decay. You find a rotting caterpillar. And so we sometimes forget that there's a lot of, of death and decay and let it go of things and things breaking that come as part of that transformation. Yeah, and a lot of, of our world is mundane and also struggle that people don't see, I think, especially with social networks today, you know, on Facebook, everybody has kind of their front end world that they're sharing about their life. Everything is great and wonderful and good on the on the external side. But behind the scenes, there are like, yes, I sit on the same toilet uh, and I wash the dishes and, you know, there is drudgery along with all of this. And kind of in the, uh, the stoic perspective, if you enjoy those moments, fully immerse yourself in those moments, they become less struggle, they become more interesting. And it's almost, it's not an, not to say like out of body experience or anything like that. But there is this idea of the observer observer concept, right? Like you, you become a third party observer of your own work. And if you are observing yourself working, and really involved in things, then you become kind of um, almost enjoying the things that you're doing. And I hear, I hear that uh, kind of uh, sense in the book that is struggle can be uh, a, a knife that cuts both ways, but you can you you can use it and sharpen it to your own effect in in a way, and I and I really like that notion. People should read the book, but I want to want to dive into a few components within the book. You 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 talk about the idea that you learned about productivity and were interested in it from kind of the mental emotional perspectives, you know, kind of what's happening on the inside. And so you you talk a little bit about the fight or flight response, and I'm curious why that came up for you, uh, how you saw it as struggle being another way, uh, kind of this third way for you. And can you explain that for folks who are listening? Yeah, absolutely. So I think instinctively, because we see struggle as a taboo, because we see struggle as a sign of, of wrong, you know, that something's wrong, we often respond to it with a fight or flight response. That's kind of our first response. It's like, um, and, you know, I, I basically call it, oh shit, like, oh shit, something's happened. Um, and and fear will basically say, oh shit, something's happened. Where, But actually, if we can come out of that fight and flight response and go into curiosity mode, curiosity will look at that same thing and go, oh, something's happening. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and so fight or flight, basically, what it does is you know, it, it just puts us into a very limited perspective. Because in that moment, there is a threat. 
And we need to decide, do we fight this threat and overcome it? Or do we run away from it and make ourselves safe that way? So either way, there's a threat and our goal is to make ourselves safe. Now, if you translate that into productivity terms, the work that you're doing, if, um, you know, if writing that book is making you feel unsafe and you, know, you all you need to do is either just get through it or run away from it, that's not going to help you write your best book. Um, so it's, um, it's useful for biological threats. It's useful for physical threats. Not so useful when it comes to um, often social threats and threats to our identity, threats to our confidence, which is often what we get into when we're in that kind of mode of procrastination or you're struggling with, with our work. Um, so for me, it was, it was a good way of articulating what happens when we're struggling, the kind of things we end up saying to ourselves and how we make it worse. So how we, we then go, oh, well, that must mean that there's something wrong with me. And, it, you know, and, and all the kind of things that we attach to that. But actually also it helped me to recognize that actually if, if fight and flight is about our fear response, then maybe curiosity is the antidote to that. And it can look at exactly the same thing and see different things. So rather than seeing friend or foe, rather than seeing safe or dangerous, it might start seeing what's interesting. You know, what's maybe a diversion? What's maybe a new route? What's maybe just like less traveled? And, and so we start to see a wider perspective rather than just black and white, good and bad. You would just start to see it at many more possibilities that way. There was so much to unpack here. I'm really, really curious about all of these pieces, right? Curiosity uh, intended to be stated. And that is, you're, you're talking about fight or flight response. And so in, in traditional psychology parlance, there, there are kind of three responses that we can do. You, you talked about the first two. The third, of course, is freezing, not responding. And I know that I see this in my own work with, I work with small business entrepreneurs. And so I see them all the time kind of in that state where they're, they, they feel fear, right, from whatever function is happening in the business awry, and they decide to freeze, they, they are procrastinating, or they are just petrified by what could happen. And I'm, I'm curious, the, the thing that you're talking about, which is curiosity, is a childhood, like something that you see in children, uh, you see the sense of curiosity, and we tend to think of kids as being uh, somewhat foolish, right, they'll run out and do things that are completely you know, like dangerous, right? They'll jump off the couch. Uh, they will. They will go touch the stove. Their curiosity gets ahead of themselves, and that's actually very powerful. We we kind of unlearn our curiosity as we get older, and this binds together both psychological sh uh, safety, but also reframing in psychological terms. What can people do to nurture their curiosity in that sense to be able to kind of build their struggle muscle? Yeah, um, I think it's with questions it, it's asking questions it, sometimes it's channeling your own inner six-year-old so um for me having kids really helps because i kind of go you know I, I notice questions that they ask and i go oh, that's such a good question um so sometimes it, it's doing that it's you know asking like what would a, a curious six-year-old um say about this or, or ask about this um but i think even just like going okay so what would curiosity say um you, just even that helps us to kind of step outside of our experience and go, oh, there's another way of looking at this. Um, and so I think it's it's definitely, it, it's a noticing thing and it's a an intentional thing. Um, so even just kind of going, I'd like to activate curiosity now. Um, and maybe having some questions to ask is, is, is often a good place to start. Um, but also asking that question from a place of curiosity rather than judgment. 
Um, so like, say for example, if something didn't go well and you go, why did you do that? Or why did that go wrong? It can feel a bit like, whoa, I'm, you know, I'm being judged here. And that can still be very fear-based. Whereas maybe asking, oh, what happened there? Or how does that work? And um, maybe that can be a better way of getting into the curiosity side of things rather than judgment. Yeah, and I also always recommend to people to feel their like sense where their body's at. And having been a longtime meditation advocate, I always am aware of, am I feeling tightness in my stomach? Am I feeling tightness in my chest? Am I clenching my shoulders or my hands in, in certain environments? And those feelings are things that if we release them physically, we tend to also feel the release mentally and emotionally. And there's another kind of exercise that people can do, which is that if you, if you feel your body going into fight or flight response, which is that your body then, you know, uh, lets out a bunch of, uh, you know, chemicals in order to be able to get you into that mode. Uh, if you just literally feel that sensation, it's actually the same sensation you feel like when you're super excited. It's the same response. So worry, anxiety, and fear-based response is almost identical to the joy, elation, um, excitatory response. And so we can kind of use those things to our effect. And so I, I, I love your suggestion about having some uh, mechanisms to be able to like ask ourselves questions and be aware of those things. Be aware of your body and where your mind is at those times as well, I think is a great uh, component there. You, you talk about Oh, go ahead. Just what, from, from what you said there, I think asking ourselves, like, what does this mean and what am I making it to mean? Um, can often be the difference between is this fear and anxiety or is this excitement and joy? Um, because it's often the our belief about what's happening to us that changes um, what, what that looks like. So, um, you know, I had exactly the same, uh, that, that kind of situation with uh, my daughter and some of her friends when they were doing a, a, a running um, competition. And one of her friends was like, oh, all these nerves, you know, these butterflies in my stomach. And I said, that's great, because that's your body preparing you for this race. So you can channel that energy into your legs. She's like, oh, yeah. And all of a sudden she wasn't worried anymore, because originally it was, I'm feeling nervous and I'm worrying that that means that I'm not ready for this or I'm not cut out for this. But if I go, oh, I'm feeling all these feelings and that means it's my body preparing me to do this, but that's fine. I don't have to worry about it. So yeah, that, that's, that's a great way of, of kind of shifting it from anxiety to excitement. Yeah, or if you're not struggling, then you're not doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> like you know your your body is designed to tell you whether or not there's things that are uh going well or not going so well and uh, sometimes it tricks you as with a child maybe feeling anxiety and that's your body preparing itself for something that's important but i, I love that i love that in the book you talk about the idea of chaos and control and the the um, binding of those two pieces i'm not sure that they're necessarily uh, polar opposites, but can you talk to me a little bit about how chaos and control connect to each other? And I've heard in other uh, interviews, I, I did listen to all of the other interviews you've done before uh, in preparation for today, uh, because I'm an A-class nerd. And so uh, I wanted to be prepared. And you, you talked a little bit about uh, what I heard was a little bit of maybe GTD lingo here, getting things done lingo in there in some way, shape or form. And so I'm curious how the idea of uh, chaos and control make its way into maybe some of the terminology that we use in getting things done or GTD lingo of control and perspective. How 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 does that make its way into struggle? Yeah, so I think 
There are a couple of thoughts I have on this. Um, the first is sometimes what happens when we feel out of control is that we look for control. Um, so in the book, I talk about the, the toilet paper moment. So the moment in the pandemic where there's this virus, nobody knows anything about it. We pretty, we're pretty sure it's not a stomach bug virus. And yet the response is, um, let's go out and buy toilet paper and make sure we don't run out of that. Um, and, and I think that we see that a lot in different guises, in different um, you know, ways that we work, that we respond to things, is that we often go, I don't know what I'm doing here, or there's something uncertain, ambiguous, there's a sense of chaos, there's a sense that I'm not in control, and I feel like I need to be, so I'm just going to go and grab something I can control. And sometimes it's, you know, it's something as silly as toilet paper, but sometimes it actually, the thing that we go to control makes everything worse. Um, so it could be in a tricky conversation where we go, hang on a minute, you're not listening to me. So therefore I'm going to try and make you rather than, oh, I'm, something's not right. We're not understanding each other. Maybe I need to listen more. <laughs> so, um, so I think there's definitely something around us feeling like we need to have control that can come some, sometimes come and, and be unhelpful. Um, and so one of the things I talk about in the book is, you know, what if we don't see chaos as something that needs to be controlled? What if instead we see chaos as um, potential, as the you know, untapped energy? So there's a whole load of energy there. And yes, it can be scary. It's a bit like a storm. You know, oh, I can't control this. But what if there's a way of seeing the, the beauty in that and the energy in that and going, well, how do I channel this rather than how do I control it? So one of the stories I tell in the book around that is... Um, uh, a lady called Elaine who had um, has uh, a, a child who had lots of um, various learning difficulties and um, various uh, neurodiversity. Um, and a lot of his childhood felt like a real struggle of trying to um, trying to contain all of these elements that were part of his personality. And um, a lot of what went, he went through in schooling was all about control, trying to control his behavior. And actually, when they realized, when they started looking at it differently and started looking at how do we help him to thrive um, rather than how do we control him, then that completely changed how they interacted with him, the environment they created for him, but also changed how he understood his behavior as well. So they started to understand that his behavior is communication rather than um, something to be punished or controlled. It's so funny. I'm a big fan of Arthur C. Clarke, and in uh, Profiles of the Future, he he he's often quoted as saying, "Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic." And what I hear you saying is that chaos is like magic. We don't necessarily see its its uh, true intelligence, and so we then try to control it, try to tame it. And in reality, that is not quite how it works. And uh, it's funny, because I tend to talk about chaos and, and things that are kind of out of control. Life is messy, I usually say, and you just have to learn how to navigate in that mess. And it, it sounds a little akin to what you're saying here in struggle, and I really appreciate that. It's, it's something that I can I can I can manage when I know that I'm not supposed to control everything, and uh, like almost every conversation in my household growing up was someone trying to gain control of what was happening. We, I grew up with a lot of uh, siblings, you know, so it's a big household. You know, there are six of us, and you know, everybody's trying to 
you're not listening. You're not listening when in reality, uh, what we should have probably done is used our ear to mouth ratio, which is listened a little bit more and uh, spoke a little less. So I, I really, really appreciate that. Is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you wanted to talk about as it relates to struggle? Was was there any other piece in the book where you felt like this was really just such good stuff that you wanted to share? Maybe, but I just had a thought actually when you were talking about um, that, that kind of situation in your family. Um, and it relates back to when we talk about fight and flight and you said the third thing is, is freeze. There's actually a fourth one as well, which is fawn. And it's basically the people pleasing gene. <laughs> and um, you know, and and it's so interesting that you know sometimes actually that's our response to fit in and to toe the line and to kind of shrink ourselves down in order to not make waves and not to create that chaos. So you know, maybe there's something around that actually recognizing when we're doing that and and not being afraid of our own chaos not being afraid of like the, the bits of us that don't fit in and the bits of us that are too much or not enough. And, and kind of, you know, actually, if we make space for that, how much brighter we can all shine individually without feeling like we all have to conform and all fit into these neat little boxes. I really appreciated that insight. I think it's so uh, fascinating for us all to really take heart to the fact that we don't need to all fit in in order to be able to feel full and to feel like we are where we need to be. And I think a lot of struggle has to do with that, us feeling like we're pushing against some invisible barriers uh, to entry into the the game of life, right? And uh, I really appreciate the any any material that really helps us understand how to be both the best us, but also being comfortable with who we are, where we are, when we are. And so I really appreciate you joining me here on the show, Grace. How can folks keep up to date with you, learn more about you? I'll put these links in the show notes so folks will have links to them. But if you could just tell people who are listening uh, how they can keep up to date with you. Absolutely. So if you want to get in touch with me, then you can find me at gracemartel.com. Um, I'm on all, all the usual um, social media places. So I'm Grace Marshall on Twitter. Grace Marshall Ninja on Instagram because Grace Marshall was already taken. <laughs> and you can find me on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. And if you want to know more about the book, then strugglethebook.com is where you'll be able to find out about that. We'll have links in the show notes to all of those things. That was Grace Marshall, author of Struggle, The Surprising Truth, Beauty, and Opportunity, Hidden in Life's Shittier Moments for Productivity Book Group's author, interviews, uh, author interview series. Again, thank you so much for joining me here, Grace. Absolute pleasure, Ray. Thank you so much for having me. Just a couple of quick announcements. Our next Productivity Book Group reading discussion will be The Home Edit by Clea Scherer and Joanna Teplin. That live discussion call will take place on June 30th, 2021 at noon Eastern. Full details are available at productivitybookgroup.org by clicking on Upcoming Books. Finally, all Productivity Book Group podcast episodes are archived at productivitybookgroup.org under episodes. So if you missed a call and you want to review it, feel free to head over there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Productivity Book Group. I'm Ray Sidney Smith. Take care. Here's to your productive life.